This is the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Now, here's Jason Jones. Aloha, everybody, and welcome to the Jason Jones Show. I am your host, Jason Jones, broadcasting from the beautiful hill country of Texas. All right, guys, um, a great interview for you today. But before we get to that, I'm crushing on my next book. I actually have two books coming out this year, uh, The Great Campaign Against the Great Reset, The Sprint to Save Civilization. Hopefully, it'll be out this November from Sophia Press. And then in the summer, next summer, my spiritual autobiography about my my relationship with God from birth till today, and I was an atheist till I was 30, on rocky soil, the spiritual autobiography of someone you may not meet in heaven. So I have two books I'm working on, but I'm crashing to get the next book to the publisher by the end of the month so we can get out in November. So I've had horse blinders on. I'm, fo- you know, I'm very much focused on our work in Afghanistan, Malawi, Nigeria, Ukraine. And um, also we have a film in development. We'll be shooting in Hawaii in December and January. A pilgrimage coming up too, by the way, in January in Hawaii to Kalapapa. It's in the show notes. I'll put a link to the pilgrimage in the show notes. And it's selling out fast. So if you want to go, uh, check it out in the show notes. You'll be going to Hawaii with me. We'll be on the island of Hawaii and Molokai and going to Kalapapa, uh, the colony for people with Hansen's disease, leprosy, as it was known then. Um, and you know St. Damien and St. Marianne were there and served uh, the, the, those patients on the colony. So um, I've had on my horse blinders, and I'm focused on what I have to do. And then, But out of the corner of my eye, I'm seeing headlines. We addressed yesterday Hunter and all of that. Um, which, by the way, did that not go sideways for Hunter Biden yesterday with his plea agreement falling apart? If you didn't listen to my show yesterday, you need to listen to that. Zmirak goes off <laughs> on that topic. Um, but out of the corner of my eye, and as I read the daily newspapers, um, you know, you're seeing story after story. Israel on the brink of civil war. And as you look to try to understand what it's about, is at least as I did, um, it seemed like a lot of commotion over what at first glance seems to be a very small reform by Benjamin, Netany- Benjamin Netanyahu and his party. A judicial reform. And you're like, this is a struggle between the branches of government and there are headlines in, in, in newspapers across the world saying this, this could lead to civil war. One of the best things about having a podcast is if you want to know something about something, you could call the leading expert in the world and say, well, you come on my podcast and help us try to understand this. And if I said, if I just called him and said, you know, hey, I need you to help me understand this. I'm just some guy. They're not going to talk to you for an hour. But um, I wanted to get a grasp of what was happening in Israel because I look at the world as like a Jenga, the game Jenga, and just more and more pieces are being pulled. Um. And if you were to see Israel collapse in the civil war, this would be a very big piece. And sooner or later, the whole thing is just going to collapse into chaos. Uh, it's collapsing into chaos. So I have great news for you today. I literally have the, the probably the best guest in the world that we could have to walk us through what's going on. His name is David Flato. He is a professor of jurisprudence. Uh, let me put on my reading glasses here. He is a professor of law and Jewish philosophy 
at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He is a scholar of Jewish law and and philosophy as well as comparative constitutional law. He has a new book. Can you believe this? The struggle in Israel is a struggle over the separation of powers. And his new book, The Crown in the Courts, Separation of Powers in the Early Jewish Imagination, uh, I just ordered it, can't wait to read it, um, is out. So we're going to talk to Professor Flato on, um, you know, what the heck's happening in Israel. And because of his expertise in um, Jewish philosophy, theology, and how it relates to the separation of powers, we get to go pretty deep. This is a very deep podcast. You're not, you're not going to hear from anyone uh, who is more informed on this than Professor Flato. So again, it's sort of like our podcast we did with the anonymous intelligence officer on where we went through the combatant commands and 20 years of Afghanistan occupation, which by the way is our number one downloaded show. Um, you know, it's going to be at that level of, of detail and depth. So it was a great interview. I was so grateful to interview Professor Flato. This episode is being brought to you by the Vulnerable People Project. We are approaching the um, the second anniversary of the collapse of Afghanistan because of Joe Biden's ham-fisted withdrawal that left our allies, religious minorities, and in fact half the country is suffering hunger right now, the total chaos. And the Vulnerable People Project is operating across all of Afghanistan, serving our allies that were abandoned. Those allies that are called SIVs, that were promised a visa in exchange for doing very dangerous work for the United States. VPP, among all of our work around the world, um, has prioritized for the past two years getting every SIV out into a place where they are safe. And we resettled people on every continent but Antarctica. We still have, there are probably about 150,000 SIVs still in Afghanistan. Afghanistan. We've, we've distributed 3 million meals to religious minorities, ethnic minorities, to the women uh, and children, the widows and orphans of our Afghan allies who were killed in action. It's a priority of ours to serve them. Supporting education for girls, in Afghanistan, go to thegreatcampaign.org. You can see all of our work right there. You can watch videos. You can look at pictures. You can see everything we're doing. We have our Vulnerable Parish program in Nigeria where we're providing security and support to Christian communities in the most embattled parts of Nigeria. If you want to stand with the most vulnerable people in the world when the world is left, then the Vulnerable People Project is your apostolate. And we're calling our campaign this August the Perseverance of a Promise. Everyone in America was heartbroken. Every sensible, noble, decent human being in this country was scandalized at how we treated our allies in Afghanistan. A lot of organizations showed up and did their best, some for a couple weeks, some for a few months, but it's a very lonely place now to serve our allies. So if you have the perseverance of the promise, um, stand with us. Go to thegreatcampaign.org, make your best one-time gift, or become a monthly donor. This episode is also being brought to you by Epoch Times. If you want to be informed, if you want to be free, you have to be informed. Go to iReadEpoch.com, subscribe today, 
Use the code Jason Jones. I get the print and digital subscription. And um, the only problem I have with Epoch Times is I wish they had a daily print edition, but it's weekly. Go to iReadEpoch.com. The code is Jason Jones. All right, on with the interview with Professor David Flato. The separation of power from the earliest days of the Jewish imagination to the streets of Jerusalem today, the streets of Tel Aviv today. Um, with Professor Flato. Here we go. The Jason Jones Show. Professor Flato, welcome to the Jason Jones Show. Great to be here. Thank you, Jason, for the invite. No, Please I, call me David. All right, David. Well, David, first of all, you're the perfect guest for this. And you were recommended to that. me from a dear friend. And I was just reading your bio. And you wrote a book on the Jewish imagination and the separation of powers. And I wanted to invite you on to talk about the current crisis in Israel. And it seems really, at first glance, to an outsider, it seems like the battle this passionate battle is over almost minutia. But then as I looked more closely, it's, and you look at it, it's a unicameral system. The judges are, are the separation of powers in Israel is, is, is strikingly different than here in the United States. So it is, it is a pretty big deal. So I'm just so grateful to have you on the show and I couldn't imagine a better guest. It's great to be here. I'm uh, sorry about the occasion because what's going on in Israel for all, uh, Israel lovers and for all those who I would argue care about democracy and liberal values um, and the future of the West and the future of the world. Um, they should be concerned about Israel, although Israel has so many strengths. So I don't think we should be overly concerned. Israel is going to manage and navigate its way through this, but it is an intense moment in Israel's young 75 year history. Um, so I, I wish things were a little more stable in the country, uh, but they are what they are, and this is part of the growing pains of a young democracy, and the country's dealing with it, but those who are involved are definitely concerned. Yeah, I saw something beautiful um, on on a news clip this morning. There were opposition groups, the group that supported the change going up an escalator, and the group opposing it going down, but they were shaking hands. Um, and high five yeah, each a other. Beautiful, uh, I, that, that's a beautiful snapshot. A friend of mine uh, from Israel, right now I'm in New York, a friend of mine from Israel sent that to me a couple of days ago. And these, you know, the person who forwarded it to me is somebody who's among the many, many wonderful people in the country who are optimistic and their hearts and souls are invested in this country. I, I think that snapshot or that short video of people going up and down and shaking hands is a little bit of a rare moment. Uh, there are deep divides in the country, uh, and everybody cares. A lot is at stake about uh, not just the courts, but somehow the courts have become a symbol for uh, the direction of the country and its uh, attitudes on basic political, social, cultural, religious issues. So uh, there's definitely a moment of tension where these, you know, things erupt and it's not always so uh, pretty, but uh, I think ultimately 
Uh, I was listening to a clip from 2005 where there was a lot of discord in the country with the withdrawal from the Gaza Strip and also a moving clip where somebody's crying and saying, hey, we're brothers and sisters. So we're engaged in a deep debate, but we're brothers and sisters. Uh, but sometimes the debate is loud and Israelis know how to express <laughs> themselves loud and clear. They're not shy. Well, I think that's what's striking. The reason I wanted to have you on is sort of with the nature of my work at the Vulnerable People Project. I'm, I have horse blinders on to most of the world. And then to see headlines, civil war looming for Israel, it's startling. And, uh, you know, President Joe Biden, and I, and I don't think it's appropriate, but this week President Joe Biden, I think four times sort of weighed in on this and chastised Benjamin Netanyahu. And I, I don't think it's... It is striking that so many foreign leaders are sort of speaking into this crisis in Israel. Is that something that's appropriate for, you know, as an American, I don't want to see, you know, a prime minister of another country telling Americans what they should be doing. Is it is it appropriate? Do you think it's appropriate or is it a place for foreign heads of state to be speaking into Israel's internal politics? I largely share your concerns. I think sometimes Western leaders are overly vocal about internal issues. I think it's one thing about policies of the Middle East and another thing, internal Israeli issues. I don't think that means that countries can't, in their own diplomatic channels, express or viewpoints or relay messages. I think that is legitimate, especially a country that's a, a deep ally. Um, and a long, a long-standing ally, but there are ways to do it, and it's such a fine line. And in this country, in the U.S., we know how a lot of that material could be fodder for anti-Israel views, which could easily cross the line into anti-Semitic views. And you see Biden, President Biden, I think, trying to uh, dance this very delicate dance of pushing and prodding, but then trying to take uh, a step back and affirming the relationship, and that's all very subtle. And in today's day and age, that type of subtle communication can be uh, abused. So uh, it's concerning to me when President Biden or other leaders do such things. I, I would add, though, and I do think that just in fairness, there are people in Israel who uh, want uh, President Biden and others to speak up. So it's not all coming externally. Sometimes it's coming from within Israel. There's certain voices who feel like their position can be backed by uh, the United States. Uh, but that's a dangerous game. And I think sometimes it's myopic to um, just view the specific issue rather than taking a more uh, macro a larger perspective and trying to resolve as much internally as one can and when there are international issues to communicate with others uh, as it's necessary. Yeah, and because when I hear it, I just assume he's speaking into Israel on behalf of the interests of the United States and not on the interests of the people of Israel. And so I think you're right. That would be a natural assumption. And so if I were an Israeli, it would make me wonder, and then it would be easy to exploit by foreign powers that want to disrupt Israel's security. And I want maybe, maybe we can get to that to the security concerns, but I want to start with sort of like a, I'm just a bill, only a bill on Capitol Hill, schoolhouse rock sort of. You know, how did the doctrine of reasonableness come to exist? How was the Supreme Court selected? There's no written constitution to appeal to. There's no common law. There's no case law. Um, so yeah, how, can you can you kind of give us the 
Spark Notes, Cliff Notes version of the sort of background of this doctrine of reasonableness and why it's causing so much division? I'll try to take a more uh, macro perspective and then we could get to reasonableness. Israel uh, was under the Ottoman Empire and then it was under uh, British Empire, British Mandate. And that was until 1948. And in 1948, with the establishment of the modern state of Israel, Israel's uh, legal system was at a, was a bit of a quandary. It could have gone in different directions. There were voices that said, let's establish Israeli law. There were voices that said, hey, we've been working under a uh, British common law system that's been working pretty well. A lot of the jurists were trained under that system, and they said uh, that this is the apex of uh, sophisticated law and Western law, common law, so let's adopt that. Uh, there were those who had a Jewish uh, tradition as their defining uh, values and said, let's use Jewish law to establish our legal system. So there were all sorts of voices, but the reality was that the common law was dominant in the legal tradition. And to this day, it is a uh, major influence in Israeli law. So you have common, uh, so there is common law in Israeli law. A hundred percent. I didn't know that. And, oh. Yeah. There's, listen, there's an amalgam. There's a bit of uh, Ottoman, there's a bit of Jewish values, but the most dominant is common law coupled with Israeli law based on Israeli legislation, um, and then how that is interpreted. So it's a it's a common law system, uh, and some of the doctrines come from Anglo, English, American, and sometimes other common common law regimes, uh, and uh, but a major piece of it is. Knesset, Israeli Knesset legislation, as it's been interpreted by uh, judges. So it's the statutory law as interpreted by judges and the Supreme Court justices. So that's the larger picture of the legal system. Um, and Jewish law, which I, I have particular interest in, is also in the background certain Jewish traditions, which are thousands of years old, but that's more in the background. It's less at the fore. In terms of a constitution, let me speak about that because that's a very important piece of the puzzle. Uh, under the UN resolution in 1947 and the partition plan, one of the requirements was that each uh, country that would be formed, both Israel and Palestine, under that partition plan would adopt the constitution. Of course, that partition plan never got fully actualized because that led to uh, both internally um, among Palestinians and Israelis, having the wars in 47 from November 29, 47, and then with declaration in May 14, 48, the attack from the neighboring Arab countries, the surrounding countries. So there was uh, the War of Independence. Uh, but Israel, when it declared independence on May 14, 1948, said clearly and explicitly in its Declaration of Independence, which I encourage all to read in English in translation. It's a very powerful document uh, that, interestingly, you see more and more in Israel today, 75 years in. Uh, now that there's a big debate about the future of the country, a lot of people are returning to the Declaration of Independence. So in the Declaration, there's an explicit 
commitment to write a constitution, and there's a timeline, it's not a very realistic timeline, was supposed to get going by October 48, just half a year later. And uh, the uh, first uh, Congress, if you will, was supposed to be a constituent assembly, not a legislator, not a constituent. Uh, that never happened. Uh, that uh, in October 48, that constituent assembly basically renamed itself as the first Knesset, and they pushed off this project of a constitution. At first, at first they just pushed it off a bit for several months uh, into 1949, into 1950, and a huge debate uh, ensued in early Israel in its first couple of years about. Should there be a constitution? Different drafts of constitutions were actually formulated. Some of them really fascinating. You can read them to this day. I don't know if they're available in English. Some influenced by America, some influenced by Ireland and other other countries. Uh, but ultimately, the constitution was not adopted. There are different theories about why it was not adopted. Uh, some uh, blame the religious parties. It's true that the ultra-Orthodox parties were less comfortable with the idea of a constitution, but they were pretty small in the country. Interestingly, it seems to be that none other than the first and legendary prime minister of Israel, Ben-Gurion, was the uh, most influential voice against having a constitution. And there are different theories about why he was against having a constitution. Uh, some and one of the justifications he said at the time is, listen, a lot of uh, Jews are still going to immigrate to Israel. And that's true. In the first three years, the population size doubled. So Ben-Gurion said, how are we going to set in stone a constitution when the population demography is changing so dem dem uh, dramatically? Another thing he said was, we're in the midst of fighting a war. And uh, we're just getting going, and we don't really uh, know the direction of this country, and things aren't stable enough. So this is not the right time to have a constitution. Uh, and then there's a more cynical view, which is probably has some truth to it also, is that Ben-Gurion was real status. He had a very dominant majority. Um, the Mapai, the labor were... Uh, a strong majority, and they had a clear vision of where the country should go, and they didn't want their hands tied. Um, and there's probably truth to the reality that too much was going on then, post-Holocaust, fighting wars, mass immigration, a very poor country uh, just trying to somehow miraculously get off the ground, uh, finding consensus over core issues to uh, bill uh, to establish a constitution was illusory and a uh, fantasy and not reality. So in 1950, uh, they uh, uh, this was still a big debate. Uh, just one interesting thing. Can I address that really actually, quick? There's yeah, something that's really sure. interesting about that that I've thought about with my work in Afghanistan is we have all these immigrants coming to the United States from Afghanistan and they're traumatized. It's like uh, it's it's uh, you know they've all have severe PTSD to put it mildly. Mm -hmm. And you had the state of Israel, it was founded by a traumatized people so that this obsession for security um, was in, is, was, was down to the very bones of the founders of the state of Israel. And then, and that, 100%. And, and you, I'm sorry, go ahead. 
I, I'm just saying you think of, you know, in the U.S., if you think of U.S. constitutional law and post 9-11, some of the major decisions that the U.S. Supreme Court had to deal with is how to apply the Constitution in times of emergency uh, when uh, security issues are at the fore. And uh, it's obviously very uh, challenging. Uh, and here, a country's birthed in that reality. And the truth is, 75 years later, it's still in that reality. But in the beginning, even more so. Uh, it was that, you know, there were 600,000 people in the country, and they were trying to fight uh, five uh, neighboring nations, hostile nations, enemy nations. So the idea of having a constitution that would be very limiting, uh, something like a Procustrian bed, and they were uh, concerned about that. So one could be a bit cynical or a bit sympathetic, I think probably an admixture, but Ben-Gurion didn't want it. Um, and it didn't happen. And I just want to say, curiosity on the other side, that Begin, Menachem Begin, the other legendary prime minister, symbol of the right, who eventually came into power in a major turning point later on in the 1977. But Begin was... Uh, in the party that was known as Chirut, and Chirut means liberty. So the name of the conservative party at the time, today they're called Likud, but the predecessor name to Likud is Chirut, which is liberty. And here you had classic conservative values that basic liberties need to be protected. And Begin was the one who was pushing uh, for a constitution. So just an interesting reversal today that here uh, today, if we'd have to generalize, maybe the people on the left are the ones who are more asserting basic rights and those on the right maybe are uh, challenging. That's a bit of a simplification. I'm just pointing out that in the early years of the country, it was actually the left that was uh, more skeptical about a constitution and the right that wanted a protection of basic liberties. Uh, but let me just say one thing about 1950, because it's very important to understand where we are at today. In 1950, they came to a compromise called the Harari Compromise. Harari was an early member of the Knesset, and he uh, was behind this compromise idea. And the compromise was, we're not uh, succeeding in drafting a constitution today. We're not uh, forging consensus today. So let's uh, have a piecemeal approach. And the piecemeal approach is let's have a committee that passes basic laws or introduces basic laws one at a time. And over time, as these aggregate, then the sum of them will be our constitution, which will be presented uh, again to the legislator, maybe sitting at the constituent assembly that will ratify the aggregate of these basic laws. Uh, it's uh, building on a German paradigm of basic laws, but the idea of a gradual uh, formulation of a constitution is very fascinating because it raises almost a classic political theory question, which is when should you formulate your constitution at the beginning or once your identity has emerged. Uh, and obviously in the U.S., the approach was uh, after the Board of uh, Articles of Confederation to get going very early, and that has proved remarkably successful in the U.S. In Israel, that wasn't reality, so they came up with this creative other approach of let's do things over time. 
that was the theory. Uh, I, I want to pause just to see if there's any, uh, if you want to interject. But then well, yeah, I, I can see the challenge in this because the identity of Israel, I think, has really changed a lot from its founding, right? I think there's an irony, and uh, as well as your comment, on one level, this just kicked down the uh, kicked the can down the road of insoluble issues that were already there in the beginning, uh, that they couldn't uh, uh, forge consensus on in the beginning. So why they think over seventy five <laughs> years it'll get easier? And then what you're saying, and then things have changed. Also, the country has grown from six hundred thousand people to about ten million people. And uh, the uh, uh, Russian immigration and the Ethiopian immigration and the immigration of Jews coming from what's known as Mizrahi lands, from uh, African lands and other uh, um, from Yemen and from Iraq and from uh, Libya and other countries that changed the makeup. And, and of course, the very complicated history with the Palestinians from 48 to 67, and then since 67 with the expansion into Judea, Samaria, or the West Bank, and then the abortive attempts at peace and onward, which were all from, from Gaza. So a lot has happened, and I think this has so things have changed, and if anything, the uh, identity of the country has become more complicated. So the idea of let's have agreement over time sounds like a good strategy, but in a sense is pushing uh, fundamental issues down the road when they get even uh, more difficult to resolve. That, that's correct. So can I ask that? I want to simplify it for myself. So um, there's this struggle. There's no constitution. And so I guess there's this struggle between you have a unicameral legislator, legislature, um, no constitution. So there has to be a power struggle between the three branches of government. How is it, and like broad strokes, how has that gone back and forth? Because as Can I look at- Can I just at, say one thing about yeah, the Constitution? Sure. And then yeah. I want to circle back to your question. It's a bit of a debate uh, whether Israel has a Constitution. It's very common that you'll read out there that Israel has no Constitution. It's true. There's no one document where uh, all the constitutional principles are laid out that was presented before a committee that was then presented to the people that was then adopted. All that's correct. What is a bit complicated is the basic laws. So I just want to elaborate very briefly about that. The idea was let's pass these basic laws. And the first basic law was passed in 1958, and it dealt more with structure of government. But it was only in 1992 which is about some uh, uh, 40, 45 years into the country, where they passed a basic law that pertained to issues that we would describe as Bill of Rights issues. Uh, and there was a lot of debate about that. And finally, somehow, in a very uh, uh, remarkable moment, there was a basic law passed in 1992 related to human dignity, uh, in Hebrew, it's called Kvod Adam Bechiruto, Human Dignity and Liberty. And, and that uh, was a moment of awakening for the more progressive voice in Israel and for the judiciary. The judiciary became slowly became stronger in the country in the 1980s and the 1990s, interestingly modeled a bit after the American model. Uh, so the most famous uh, jurist, the Chief Justice Aaron Barak 
He's a professorial. He was an attorney general in Israel. He's a professor at Hebrew University. He was, I think, the first, uh, uh, the youngest tenured professor at the Hebrew University. So he's a very bookish Ashkenazi uh, Jew from from the elite of uh, Israel. I, I put it elite in quotes because that's all controversial today. But from the more from the Eastern European and Central European and uh, uh, and Western European um, and a, a white male and uh, very educated and he led the court and uh, he said uh, well the court uh, there's now a constitution that's emerged because we have these basic laws that have aggregated over 40 years and now we have uh, the beginnings of a bill of rights and therefore we the judiciary are the ones that should be interpreting uh, because what does it mean to have uh, basic laws that are holding the legislator, and here's your different branches that you're referring to, holding both the executive branch and legislator in check under these basic laws? Well, who's going to hold them to these basic laws? They're not going to self-regulate. So it must mean that the judiciary, that's our responsibility. And those who know U.S. constitutional law, it's sort of the Marbury v. Madison moment in the 1990s in Israel. Uh, it's one specific case in 1995 uh, called Bank Mizrahi, uh, where uh, Barak uh, and the court announced this most explicitly in a ruling that was several hundred pages because they uh, knew that this ruling was going to be uh, uh, revolutionary. And Barak saw himself as a revolutionary figure who said, the court now has fully arrived. Now we do live under a constitutional regime. Now we do have basic rights in this country. And we, the court, need to be the guardian. Uh, and, and that's extremely controversial moment in the history of Israel's jurisprudence. Because just to generalize, I would say for half the country, it was a great moment of arrival, of maturing, of a Western uh, a liberal democracy that now has supplied the basics of a constitution and the basics of Bill of Rights and, and a court that can uh, serve as a check to the Knesset, the legislator, and to the cabinet, the executive branch, and the prime minister. Uh, so for half the country, Barack was seen as as a hero, one of the heroes of Israel. And to the other half of the country, this was scandalous because suddenly a constitution emerged. Uh, where was the assembly? Where's the entire document? Where was it uh, the public debate? Where was the ratification of the people? There's no constitution here. There's uh, laws that were passed by the same legislator that passes other laws that introduce these laws and they could amend these laws and could reject these laws. And there's just plain legislation. And uh, the court, you've aggrandized much too much power to yourself that nobody uh, authorized you to do. And that itself is usurpation of power and undermines democracy. So the debate began in the 1990s, but it was more a debate that uh, those in the academy knew about, maybe those who were court watchers knew about, maybe those who were very uh, astute and involved in political life knew about, and some others to a degree. And over the next 30 years, this debate spilled into the public arena more and more. And, and that's some What were the practical day. issues that impacted the people of Israel that caused this debate to spill over? Uh, so uh, for the critics of the court uh, and actually defenders of the court, 
they would refer to different issues. Probably one of the most basic ones is uh, ultra-Orthodox. The ultra-Orthodox population in Israel. Uh, in America, we speak about uh, within the Jewish uh, uh, population, there are unaffiliated Jews, and then you have different denominations, Reform, Conservative, Orthodox. In America also, of course, you have ultra-Orthodox. In Israel, uh, the, the generalization is there are secular Jews, and there are religious Zionist Orthodox Jews, and then there are ultra-Orthodox. Ultra-Orthodox have a complicated relationship to the state because they're not really Zionistic. They live in the state. Uh, they flourish in the state. Uh, some of them are involved in the government, uh, but a lot of it is focused on uh, the welfare of uh, their constituency, which is probably true about a lot of politics, especially uh, when you're dealing with a parliamentary system and a coalition system. So they are a, a group, uh, but the key thing to understand about this group is their demography has changed dramatically. In the early days of the state, uh, they were a very small group, um, and due to their very impressive commitment to their way of life, to their family values, to rebuilding after the Holocaust, and to building centers in different places in Israel and Jerusalem, in Bnei Brak, which is near Tel Aviv, and in other areas, they have grown dramatically. While the rest of the country, aside from the Arab population, uh, basically the Arab population and the ultra-Orthodox population has grown dramatically, and the other sectors have shrunk. Uh, these are issues that, uh, you know, we demographic challenges that we know around the world, and that's the reality in Israel. So the ultra-Orthodox pose a real puzzle um, in Israel uh, to how do they fit in within the larger uh, circle. So um, I'm sorry that some of my answers are a little long, but it all gets a little complicated. No, and I, I really appreciate this. You know, we, we've we've done sort of shows like this that go really deep into the weeds before. And what's counterintuitive okay, is they're they're the number one downloaded shows. It's and they and, okay. And so I'll so. do my best because these are large issues. But uh, let me just do my best on the ultra orthodox. Yeah. In in the beginning of the state, Ben Gurion cut a deal with a, a famous legendary rabbi who was uh, a rabbi uh, in the beginning of Israel in 1948, and he cut a deal where he said, "I'll give draft exemption." to those who are studying Torah, yeshiva students, full-time students committed to uh, the study of tradition. Uh, the numbers then were about 400 students. The reason Ben-Gurion cut a deal with them, um, the, the leader and his followers, was Ben-Gurion needed full support for the Zionist project. The UN, uh, This maybe it was even pre-48, it was right around 48, but he knew that he needed uh, world approval and UN approval for a declaration of a state, and he couldn't afford internal tensions. So he was a pragmatist in the sense, and he cut deals as he needed to. And he found uh, that compromise, he said, listen, ultra-Orthodox, you're going to get a draft exemption. And there'll be other issues also. He made certain compromises like the army will be kosher and certain public spaces will be kosher and other uh, other arrangements, marriage, divorce will be under the rubric of religious law. Uh, all, all important issues, but he uh, the, the draft exemption was a very small group. 
today, when the ultra-Orthodox are, I don't know the exact statistics, but maybe 10% of the uh, Jewish population in Israel, we're talking about an exemption for thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of people. Uh, and this leads to a lot of tension in Israel because there's mandatory conscription in Israel. Men have to do, uh, in the ordinary case, do three years. Women do two years of army service. And then there's an exemption for not a few hundred people. We're talking about a significant uh, percentage of the population. And, a lot, and they're probably, dis- if they're 10% of the population, probably the population draft age, they're 15, 18%. I don't know the exact percent, but it's significant and substantial. So a lot of the Israeli population, I'm talking about within, you know, the Jewish population now, uh, they are extremely bitter about this issue. Uh, Now, to be fair to the ultra-Orthodox, the ultra-Orthodox have all along tried to negotiate some arrangement with the state of Israel and army, this might be a little hard to understand until we get into more into the mindset of ultra-Orthodox, but uh, the army is a very uh, secular space. It doesn't mean that there aren't religious people who serve in the army. There are a lot of religious people who serve in the army, but overall, it's it's a way of life that's very different than they're very modest, separate, uh, uh, more uh, social cohesion way of life. They just like in America, ultra orthodox live in more separate communities. So too in Israel, and uh, trying to integrate them into the army would be a massive social challenge. I think those are more realistic. Say, well, maybe you should uh, serve in certain units, or maybe you should do social uh, uh, community service for a few years rather than uh, um, fighting on front lines and onward. Uh, and uh, the ultra-Orthodox don't want to have any of this. Uh, they're very concerned that if they did these things, this would dramatically change their whole way of life. And uh, for them, that is the most important thing. And they are very true to the way they live. Um, they live that the most important uh, commitment is to live by Torah values, family values, um, values of modesty and onward. And by and large, that's very sincere. Of course, you can find here and there an outlier that you can find in any group. But by and large, it's very sincere. And they see this as an existential threat to try to be forced to integrate, uh, but leads to a lot of problems. So even the public education for the ultra-Orthodox, they want to have their own education systems and they don't want um, to uh, follow a certain curriculum and uh, and, and these are issues that exist in America, but in Israel, when you're talking about uh, 10%, uh, it's, it's a big problem. And they're very um, sophisticated. Sometimes people underestimate their savvy, and they realize in a coalition system that uh, so the coalition system, the Knesset is 120 uh, people are in the Knesset, but the way it works is you need a majority to build a coalition. Uh, if Bibi Netanyahu wins the vote, that's not enough because his party is only one 20, 25, 30 seats, and you need to get up to 61 seats. You need to be a majority. So he needs coalition partners. So ever since 1977, when 
the uh, right wing, the Likud, the former Khairut party that became the Likud party became uh, in the majority. The, the majority means they found ways to find coalition partners to build a coalition of 61. And often their partners have been ultra-Orthodox. And the ultra-Orthodox know that they're needed. And they make coalition agreements where they say, hey, we'll be, we'll join. And there are certain issues that we're uh, neutral about or willing to go along with you. But these are our core issues. And our core issues is are we're not going to agree to be drafted. And we need to maintain our educational system. And we need to maintain our communities. And we need government subsidies. Um, and a lot of them don't uh, have the same, uh, not just basic education, but advanced education. A lot of them aren't integrated into the workplace. And these, this leads to a lot of major tensions. Uh, Dan, here's a question. So this is so yeah. much more fascinating to me. I want to get to this. I want to go back to this doctrine of reasonableness and the unrest. Yes. But I have yes. to say the identity and imagination is what captivates me. And, you know, we worked in, I worked in Iraq I'm going to a Yazidi Congress here in a couple of uh, in less than two weeks in the United States. There's a gathering of the Yazidi that were suffered genocide at the hands of ISIS and were displaced. And so one of my great concerns is in dealing with the Yazidi is preserving Yazidi identity and imagination while they're, you know, becoming Americans at the same time. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so here you have a nation state that was founded by a community of people that's been displaced countless times over history, uh, arriving in Israel, arrive and and so the struggle for identity and imagination. I have to imagine for the ultra orthodox, when they look at the broader society, they see people whose identity has been lost, and they're so they're holding uh, on with white knuckles to 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 hold on to this identity that I, I personally would think is very important. Their identity yeah. is very important for the state of Israel. And it should be cherished and nurtured and protected. I, I think that image of the white knuckles is perfect. And I think that's right for them. This is an ex existential battle uh, for values. And I, I think one of the challenges... And they're like a Israel, sugar cube, right? They're like a cube of sugar that sweetens the whole tea. Yes. It, it gets more complicated, though, when <laughs> uh, people feel like we have security concerns and everybody has to be all in and there's mandatory draft and there's an economic. We, we found a way somehow to build a flourishing economy, but they're way down the economy because they're not in the workforce and they don't have the same education. So th there are real concerns. Do they take advantage and of the social, I, social welfare system? To a degree, sure. Okay. They uh, find ways to get subsidize their uh, their communities, their schools, and their social uh, services. One hundred percent, they find ways, and they think they need to do this. And they've done well for themselves in Israel. Uh, so it is an irony, just because a lot of them are at their core anti-Zionistic, but it doesn't mean that they don't. Uh, in their theology, Israel is a great dream, but it's a, a not the Israel of the present day. But the Israel of the present day has been a home where they've grown dramatically and they found ways to flourish in all sorts of ways. Um, so these are complicated issues. What, uh, what's going on a lot in Israel today at the social level, and then I'll get back to the court, as you asked me, but at the social level is, so you have 
uh, you know, more in Tel Aviv, the city of uh, that's also grown tremendously over 75 years, uh, but it's predominantly a secular city. It doesn't mean that you don't have all sorts of religious people there, too. You do, but the overall atmosphere is more secular, and you have a lot of liberal and progressive people, and you have an LGBTQ community that has what uh, was almost non-existent in an explicit way 35 years ago and now um, has very strong voice. So that's in Tel Aviv. And then you have certain ultra-Orthodox neighborhoods, but they're not just small neighborhoods. They have significant population size. And then you have uh, uh, all sorts of other divides, uh, economic divides, but also, um, like I alluded to before, Jews who are coming from Ashkenazi circles, Jews who are coming from Sephardi, from Arab lands. Um, so those are divides. And then you have, of course, Israeli Arabs who are a very significant amount of the population. I'm not talking about Palestinians who are not citizens of Israel. I'm talking about Israeli Arabs who are. And they are also some uh, up to, I don't know, 10, 20 percent of the population also. So it's a very complicated place. And everybody, in a sense, focuses on their selves uh, and their own group and what their group needs. And it's sort of understandable because that's, I guess, the nature of uh, uh, social groups. Uh, that they focus on their, uh, not self-interest, but their survival and their values. Uh, but there's a collective that somehow has to work together. And uh, there's uh, that's been a challenge, um, how, how to do this. And a lot of it is it's found its way over 75 years of doing it. Um, and then the question is, is the court a facilitator or is the court exacerbating uh, tensions, taking sides, going beyond its boundaries? So uh, should I get to the issue of reasonableness? Yeah, let's see. Because what I find interesting is, so what struck me was when I, so I, I, I was investigating, like, why is this erupting onto the streets? And, you know, I had found in my research that there had been mayors that had been unseated by the courts because the courts said it was unreasonable that they were eligible to run for office. And I thought, wow, this it's not as clear cut as it's it's appearing in the Western media, where it's it's, it's authoritarianism. The authoritarian Netanyahu uh, wants to roll back the court's power, and then I'm thinking, wow, there is a real struggle um, for power between the branches, and it appears to me that as an American in our system, the court is way is is. Uh, my kids play video games and they go, oh, my character's OP. <laughs> the, the court is OP, overpowered from my perspective. Um, so I am really interested in how this doctrine of reasonableness came to be. Was it through the Knesset? Was it through the courts? Where is it being found? And how, were there abuses that led to the, to the attempt, and I guess the successful attempt to roll back the power of the court? So by and large, in the 80s and 90s, the court started to assert itself more, and then it developed certain doctrines, especially under Aaron Barak. Now I'm talking in the 90s. Uh, they were quite controversial, uh, and from American eyes, very surprising, and I think they do raise certain flags. Uh, Barak didn't just say there's judicial review, uh, but he said that there are 
the basics of a constitution. So we are the guardians of constitutionality. All of that, I think, is familiar to American eyes. But in America, it took much more time for this to develop, and there's a clear constitution. But then Barack went further, and he developed, uh, say, three doctrines that are uh, very controversial. One is he... I'm generalizing. One is he got, uh, he said standing is not an important um, doctrine. Uh, so in, a, in the U.S., to appear before court, you could only appear before court if you have an injury in fact um, and you have standing. And, uh, and by and large, uh, the Barack Court and the Supreme Court said you could challenge government action, executive and legislative action, even if you don't have standing, which means any citizen or any NGO group can challenge government action. Related to that, he also said that uh, he basically marginalized the idea of a political question doctrine, which is in the U.S., there are certain issues that it's up to the political branches, and you can't really um, turn to the courts. And, uh, and broadly speaking, again, this might be a bit of a character, but broadly speaking, I think there's truth to it that the Barack Court said that um, all matters or most matters are justiciable. So you could turn to the court. You don't need to have standing. And then he said a third thing, and it's not just him. I'm saying the court over the course of the years where he was chief justice, they developed a third doctrine, which is reasonableness. And reasonableness is inspired. So it's a court to answer just the technical question you asked. It was developed by the courts. Um, this is a doctrine that exists in the West in administrative law. It has certain roots in England and some other common law regimes. It's less common in the U.S., but even in the U.S., of course, you have review of administrative decisions and administrative judges, and you could end up in the U.S. in Article Three courts that are reviewing administrative uh, decisions. So uh, there are seeds of this idea that exist even in the U.S. I'm saying more in England and other common law regimes, but he took this idea and his court took this idea and they went further with it and they said that we will review not just the procedure of an administrative decision, not just that uh, it uh, was balanced, but we'll also look if it's extremely unreasonable. And that obviously gets to be uh, subjective, what's extremely unreasonable, um, and uh, and there are certain decisions that they made that are certainly controversial, uh, where they uh, got uh, the court said um, that a certain appointment. Um, this just happened recently that there was an appointment of a minister, Aryeh Derry, who's a very well-known personality in Israel. Um, who has a checkered uh, legal history, more about issues about his political, not so much personal, uh, but the way he used political power in various ways. And he, um, uh, Netanyahu, as part of trying to build a coalition, tried to make it, appoint him, and the court said that goes beyond. Uh, that's extremely unreasonable given his uh, what you're asking him to be a charge of a certain portfolio and given his past record. It's extremely unreasonable. He cannot be a public trustee over that issue. Um, there was more to the decision, but that was part of the decision. So, Well, this is why you're the, very- I'm so grateful to have you as, as the guest because in my Anglo-American imagination, and you've written a book on the Jewish imagination and the separation of powers, like it's unbelievable. In my imagination, the idea that our elected representatives could be overruled by a court with the principle that they kind of created, 
or they drew on from other, you know, from from Anglo-American law, but kind of greatly expanded it or arrived at it from a different from a different way. It strikes me. So in your writings, is this something that you think comes out of the Jewish? I always I I tell you know, I say to me when I'm Catholic, I think if you boil Catholicism down to our social doctrine to one principle, it would be human dignity because of the anthropological nature of the Christian faith. To me, Judaism would be boiled down to justice or law. And if I were to just boil it down, the social doctrine to one word on how it's revealed religious truths form imagination, does that sound fair? I I actually admire that you found a way to, uh, I think, identify a a core value. I wouldn't say it's the only value Judaism certainly also focuses on dignity and man created in God's image and all of that. All that's very fundamental. That having been said, I think it's a fair generalization that for uh, Judaism in all its forms and varieties and voices over millennia, uh, justice is a cardinal principle and a deep conviction that the way to build a just society that honors the godliness in each individual is through a uh, society that's committed to justice. And one of the ways to be committed to justice is through the system of courts. And one of the things I uh, try to talk about in my book, my book gets into all sorts of scholarly details, but there's a larger arc to it. And the larger arc to it is that law matters so much, justice and law and courts matters so much to the Jewish imagination. What I mean by imagination is that this is in its ideals, this is in its DNA, Jewish tradition since Sinai, since the giving of the Torah in Sinai, cares about laws and who's custodian over the laws. And uh, even a generalization I make early on in my book in passing, but it's a good opportunity for me to underline it because I think it's very Uh, striking and remarkable is that if you look at the great minds of the West in Greece and in Rome who uh, uh, revisited first principles and returned to the most fundamental of questions of um, uh, polity and a republic, I'm talking about Aristotle and Plato and all the other great minds. So they thought about how to organize a society, and they thought about who should lead the society, and they thought about different constitutional forms, and um, we still live by the legacy of their teachings. But they thought less about courts. And what's uh, remarkable is already in the Torah, there are a few different narratives about how to set up a judiciary. Jethro has one um, a set of suggestions in the book of Exodus that's retold in Deuteronomy and in the book of Numbers, there's another suggestion. And then you go to Chronicles, there's a restatement of some of these materials. And then you get to the rabbis, and the rabbis have uh, tractates and folios of pages in the Talmud that discuss not just the substance of the law, but how it's administered. And I think there's this deep intuition there of what today we'd call Fifth Amendment and Fourteenth Amendment due process of law and a right to counsel and fairness in the administration of law. These are ideas that are bedrock in 
in the U.S. in Article Three and in Bill of Rights, in the uh, you know Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Sixth Amendment through Eighth Amendment and onward. Uh, and here in, in Judeo-Christian tradition, I would say emphasize more uh, within the biblical and rabbinic that the courts play a crucial role. So when uh, the doctrine of reasonableness, I don't think you could find there. What you could find there is that judges play a crucial role, and are, one of their tools in their arsenal is their logic, and uh, that is godly. Human logic is godly, and uh, implementing a just society is uh, implementing God's will as filtered through the understanding of wise, fair, moral, human sages. Uh, so that you have there. Does that lead to your pro-reasonableness or against reasonableness? I, I think that's unfair. So I wouldn't say that. But I would say that the judiciary matters a lot. I do find, uh, this is my maybe romanticizing the mess of today in Israel, but I believe in this romantic perspective. The huge public debate that's going on in the streets and it's fracturing a country, on the one hand, is very depressing. But on the other hand, you see both sides coming out with blue and white flags, returning to a declaration of independence and saying, this is what the courts should be doing. This is the way law should be structured. This is who should be responsible over the law. And that, to me, is so quintessentially Jewish. And there's something remarkable about that. I'm not sure there are many other countries that have had public demonstrations week after week, both pro and against a certain position about the courts and about how law should function. So that, I hope, it leads to inspiring progress. The problem is that underlying it are so social tensions that uh, need to somehow be addressed. Now, in your book, when you say um, an early, I want to read your title here again, uh, Separation yeah. of Powers in the Early Imagination, is this early like pre-diaspora or, or, or during the diaspora, early on, or both? It's a great question. It's both. It's actually both. It straddles the fence of that. Uh, the main focus, my book in the introduction, I talk about the Bible. And then what I'm curious about is the reception of the Bible and how it influenced the development of Jewish ideas, ideology. Um, and my main focus is on, from what's called the, here I get a little technical for a second, and I apologize, Second Temple period and the Rabbinic period, the Second Temple period is we're talking about from about uh, 5th century BC through uh, the 1st century CE. Uh, and the rabbinic periods from 1st century C till about the 7th century period. So I'm talking about a thousand years. That's the main focus of my book. In the thousand years, Jews lived both in uh, the land of what today is the modern state of Israel, in Jerusalem, and Judea, and the Galilee. Um, and they also lived in diaspora communities in Babylonia, most in Babylonia, but also in Egypt and in Rome and in other other places. And uh, so it traverses all of that. And, and that, that is also, a, a, I think, a very... All right. ...develop both when... We lost you. We lost you for a brief... For some reason, we lost you for a brief second. Uh, so Sorry. What was I saying? <laughs> just to go back like three seconds, four seconds. Okay. I was just saying an outstanding feature of Jewish law, an outstanding, I'm saying, I think, praiseworthy, but also singular and unusual, 
is that Jewish law found a way to develop both when Jews were living in the land of Israel and living outside in the diaspora. And that's very unusual because you usually think of legal systems developing in the context of sovereignty of a land, um, of people living on a land and having sovereign power and having enforcement power, and they develop law. And a lot of the Jewish story for 2,000 years, uh, tracing back to the first century CE up until the 20th century or even the 21st century, is Jews live scattered around the world and sometimes as small communities. And yet some of what kept them going was their commitment to a way of life, uh, to Jewish law known as the halakha, the way of life. And the Jewish law, rather than... uh, ebbing and uh, declining when Jews lived in the diaspora actually found ways to uh, be elaborated upon and fleshed out and uh, formulated with greater resolution. Uh, So the 2,000 years of the diaspora is years where Jewish legal tradition uh, went through some of its most important chapters. Uh, my books focus more on the, the, you know, the, I would say, the classical period of that, which is uh, through the Talmud, which is about through the 7th century CE. But some of what I tried to describe, I think, is true for the Jewish story all the way to the present day. So do you, when you see what's unfolding on the streets of Israel, just the story that you were telling continuing to unfold? I do see it as that, but but... I, I think how it unfolds matters. So one of the uh, advantages of being a scholar is you look at more macro uh, perspective, uh, but there is uh, the moment we live in. And I think the moment we live in matters so much uh, because this is the challenges before us. The, the, to me, like uh, I, I think uh, almost all Zionists, the uh, existence of the state of Israel is a miracle. Uh, And I say that for uh, those who are believers and non-believers. There's something miraculous under its great existential challenges with such hostile neighbors following a Holocaust, uh, with even with internally in the same country, a uh, internal challenges of how to divide up the small piece of land with such different de- demographic uh, makeup and configuration that this country not just exists, but has this uh, a, a powerful uh, economy and has an army that is world-class army and, uh, and has its core commitments to values, both Western and Jewish, Largely speaking, I think that's true for most of the population. All that is a miracle. And I spend a lot of time in Israel. I live there at points and in Israel. Uh, when you walk around, that's something maybe people who haven't been there or haven't been there re- recently would be surprised. You read these stories and you're like, oh, my God, what a disaster. But you go there, it's an amazing place with a great quality of life. Uh, and people care a lot. People so when we see like so when we see country. the headlines, civil war looming, that's just overblown. I think that's overblown. I I, I think that uh, yeah that that is a trope. It's a certain trope. This has always been the uh, the third rail that 
God for it, we have such challenges with uh, external enemies. Imagine if we uh, have an, an internal divide that leads to war. And like we know here in the U.S., what is more traumatic than a civil war? So in Israel, you could find rabbinic teachings going back two, three thousand years about the devastation of civil war. Uh, today, we're speaking in the Jewish calendar uh, on the eve of a fast day. This is the most important um, fast day in the Jewish calendar starting tonight, other than Yom Kippur. And it's known as Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av commemorates the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So starting tonight, uh, through the day tomorrow, a tough uh, summer, a long summer day, uh, traditional Jews fast. And what they fast about is the destruction of the Jerusalem temple 2,000 years ago. Uh, but the way the story is usually told in, internally is that we're not fasting because Romans pillaged and sacked our temple or Babylonians, because there will always be empires, some that are going to be sympathetic and some that will be hostile. We have to look internally, and we have to think, how are we structured as a society? If we have internal fractures and fissures, that's what we have to concentrate on in this day. So this is a, a trope that is an old trope, and it's an important trope. So if you use the word civil war irresponsibly, that's scary. But if you say, hey, these divides matter, and we have to focus on them, and we have to try to uh, mitigate, and we have to try to heal. I, I think that's paramount. But I think people should not think that if you went to, and got on a plane and go to Israel tomorrow and go to Tel Aviv and go to Jerusalem or go to the Galilee that you wouldn't have an amazing time. You would. Uh, there's so much that's tremendous there in terms of beauty and history and uh, technology and modernity. And it's a great if you always look at, if you look on the rankings of quality of life, Israel always ranks very highly. So uh, uh, people are very happy there by and large. But it doesn't mean that these aren't real issues. It's both. These are real issues. But a uh, civil war, I think, God forbid, I think that's very far away. Well, that's that's why I wanted to have you on to sort of to give us a background on and why is this happening and, and to sort of comfort us? Because I look at sort of the just the catastrophe, the struggles in the whole region since the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. It's tremor after tremor, catastrophe after catastrophe. And Israel's one place just we expect there to be st uh, internal stability. And so when we see this with so many catastrophes that have happened in the region just in the past decade, it's a, it's a bit startling. And so um, I think it's providential that this um, unrest is happening, that this I guess I'm a Catholic. I'll call it a feast day. I don't know what you call. What do you call the celebration tomorrow? What would you call it in your calendar? It's actually a fast day. Because a fast day. Okay. We from. <laughs> a, fa a, fe a fast the day. Is after the fast. It's a fast day. So, um, you know that this fast day is happening in the midst of this. Hopefully, and I think imagination. And I love that. In your t the moral imagination is so important. It what's it's what mm -hmm. it's families together, communities together, and, and a human family together. And so that this this uh, fast day is happening in the midst of this unrest. Hopefully, it draws all of their imagination towards the importance of unity. As they sort of still, as you said, it's a new country. There's so much more to talk about, which um, I don't. Amen. We don't have time. I would love to get into um, the relationship with the neighbors and how your neighbors and how this impacts Israel's relationship with its neighbors. Um, the, how does this impact uh, Palestinians? But we just that would be a six hour show. Um, but I, I think, uh, Professor, you just gave the best one hour on this topic because I've been searching. 
Um, and uh, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the Jason Jones Show and giving us an hour of your time. I appreciate so much the opportunity. These issues matter so much, not just to me, but to not just Jews, but to all people who care about the West and care about uh, the Middle East and care about the future. Uh, and so I hope I both conveyed this, a certain sense of reassurance, but also a sense of, indeed, there are some real challenges here, and this is important both at the social level and at the institutional level. And Israel is going to be okay, and it's going to be more than okay, but it has to figure out some hard questions. It's not alone. A lot of countries have to deal with that, and Israel has to deal with it both in its own way and uh, maybe learning from some of what's worked out there in the world. Yeah, well, it's nothing unlike we've seen in the past years, you know, uh, with the struggle between the courts and the legislature and the executive branch. So here in the United States... Um, right. Just maybe there are definitely parallels. I think the difference, I'll just say a word on that, that, you know, here also there's a presidential commission and this idea of judicial reform. But in Israel, Israel has uh, one of the things that uh, is special about Israel and takes getting used to is that Israelis are loud and they are action oriented. And now some things are in play that has a certain dynamic to it, and there is there is uncertainty about what's going to be next. Um, and it's not just a theoretical commission. Some changes have already happened. A piece of legislation about reasonableness has passed. Now that might go to the courts in the fall, and there will be more demonstrations, and you'll read more about Israel in the news. And, um, and what happens there in the next period matters, and they're going to find a way to navigate through it and... Uh, um, but the country is still finding its way and discovering who it is. Um, and all that is critical. Well, Professor Flato, I'm going to thank our sponsors. You're welcome back on the show anytime. I can't thank Stephen. Thank you Shalowitz so much. enough, so enough to come back uh, for recommending you as a guest. Thank you. Aloha. Guys, I've been searching for background information on this crisis, and this is the best. I'm going to order the book. I'm going to put... Uh, Professor Flato's book, uh, the Amazon link, in the show notes. Why does this concern me so much? Uh, my second book, The World is on Fire. The world is like a big Jenga set. And little piece here and little piece here are being pulled. And pretty soon it's just all going to fall. And so when you hear, I'm seeing these headlines. And I've been like, I've had horse blinders on as I'm trying to get my book to the publisher by the end of the month. And uh, But I do read the New York Times every day, the Wall Street Journal every day, and my local paper every day. I get the print edition, so I'm not distracted. I'm focused on my writing, and I see the headline after headline, editorial after editorial, and then I'm, I'm working on the book. I'm starting to get concerned, and, um, and I'm wondering, what is the background in all of this? And it is important. Um, it's important for the people of Israel, Palestinians. It's important for Israel's neighbors. Um, and we just can't afford to have too many more pieces pulled out of the Jenga board. Um, this episode has been brought to you by Epoch Times. Epoch, I'll tell you, reading the New York Times every day and the Wall Street Journal every day, I wish the Epoch Times was a daily newspaper. It's the best newspaper out there. Go to iReadEpoch.com. Use the code Jason Jones, and you get the best deal out there. And I get the print. I tell you this all the time, but it's important. It's important to read with your children. And when you're on your Kindle, uh, your iPad reading the newspaper, it's not laying around for them to read. You get the print edition. You leave it around. You give your child, your children the comics. 
You read it together. I sit out on my lanai. I drink coffee. I call my kids and I cut out articles for them. I put them in little folders. I write it on their name. 